Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Inaya Fullerin Iman, a journalist, political commentator, and social campaigner. She is the founder and director of the Equiano Project, a forum to promote freedom of speech and open dialogue, and the founder of the Free Speech Champions Project, which aims to inspire free speech and open inquiry amongst young people. Inaya, welcome to Savage Minds. I'm really happy to speak with you because I've been a big fan of your writing. I dis- discovered your writing, uh, reading Spiked, where I also publish. I really loved every piece I've read of yours. It's just been wonderful and refreshing given the past year's events. Thank you. It's just amazing work. What really is thrilling is in this era of, it's in a way metaphorical, the lockdown, because we've been prior to the virus living in sort of mental lockdown culture between call-outs and getting speakers canceled and trying to get people fired from their jobs, etc. It's been a very strange time for those of us who have social critiques that I don't think are conservative, but nonetheless, if you speak against lockdown culture, you're branded as a conservative. People Mm. will say, well, no, there's no such thing as cancel culture. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's been one of the the kind of striking things is the kind of uh, acceleration of the way in which people are caricatured. And I think um, part of that, it is to do with also just the lockdown in and of itself is that we, we don't experience um, people in a kind of multi-dimensional way. There isn't a kind of public square or a field to which we can kind of engage with each other on a human to human level. Or all we see is kind of fragments and, and very kind of curated and, and, um, and, and particular fragments, whether that on, on social media. So it becomes very easy to not engage with people from an intellectual level, but to kind of just put them in a box. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's very um, unfortunate. And, and yeah, it's, it's also this whole kind of, the, the way in which anyone that doesn't accept um, wholesale, um, a, a, a bunch of premises that have come to kind of shape the public conversation, whether that is on, on the lockdown, whether that is on, on um, kind of globalization or, or, um, or, or gender or race is automatically kind of um, framed as, as on the right. And I, I, again, I just see it as a kind of example of, of how shallow public discourse has become. Um, <laughs> Truly, and also there is this aporia it's, it's incredible to me. It's, it reminds me of that Sufi tale of the man who tries to take, is it a bird out of the jar and he can't because he has the bird in his hand and he has to make a choice between his hand and the bird. Mm. And I think about this often in, since lockdown, especially in the ways in which we have all this access to knowledge. You know, it could be the Middle Ages and we can't even go out because there's a far worse thing called the plague and people starved to death at this point in time in history because there was great fear about dying because of having contact with this black death. Well, now we've got something that's far less insidious. And at the same time, we have this wealth of information. 
the internet. Never before have I seen so many lies afloat than this past year where people just grab onto the latest Twitter storm and they create their own facts despite having at their fingertips a wealth of information. You know, I struggle to understand how we have so much and we make so little use of it as a society, I mean, and how when we try to make sense of that, to paraphrase someone the other day, they read something or maybe they listened to something I said and they said, well, in another world, you know, you would be considered a, a right-wing conservative American. And I'm thinking, oh, well, okay, I'm American, but since when does talking about the left's ignoring class politics or historical materialism or their focus on race as a, as a real, something Darwin had made fun of? I mean, people forget that Darwin made fun of this. And here we are, 150 plus years later, and people are clinging to the very tropes of racism in a quote-unquote positive way. I find this alarming. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree. I, I think I think there's always been a kind of struggle with what 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 to do with race. You know, some people have kind of um, seen the kind of revolutionary potential of race, um, and uh, and other people have seen it as a kind of inconvenient um, reality that we just kind of have to accept and, and negotiate our way within. And then other people have kind of. Um, ask for the complete um, abolishing of race. And I think now um, it's quite interesting because arguably the left's position is more conservative. Um, th this idea that we should kind of ex accept um, the reality of race and, and, and negotiate our way within it. Whereas, you know, individuals like myself and many others call, call for something quite radical, which is the kind of total and, and, and complete transcendence of race. And, and, and to me, that's a much more, um, transformational and, and radical and revolutionary possibility that that is a, a possibility that I also do believe can be realized um that then a position that just accepts race and, and not just accepts it actually seeks to kind of institutionalize it um and I think that's a very very sad um place that that we're in that that is somehow framed as a progressive position well, that's one of the articles I read about yours when you make reference to Camille Foster's and Thomas Chatterton Williams attempt to shift the conversation about race. They're stating, and even lately I saw Thomas Chatterton Williams said that he wants to abandon the idea of blackness even. This was on Twitter about two or three days ago. And you wrote, leftist identitarians are fond of talking of human attributes as social constructs. However, their use of social constructionist ideas is less radical than it sounds. In terms of race, they suggest that merely inverting racial hierarchies is sufficient to achieve social justice. So instead of whiteness being constructed to connote purity, power, and intelligence, modern activists seek to invert its meaning so that it connotes guilt, debasement, and privilege. And likewise, you say, with blackness, activists seek to imbue it with new meanings from innocence to moral superiority. I love that piece. Now, thank you. I have to say, like, I read it and I was like head nodding the whole time. And, you know, I followed uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams on Twitter and I did the same. Now, the, the thing here, is, and as you know, from the Harper's letter as well, you, people are sort of up in arms over 
the notion that we should maybe be focusing on race. And I've had this discussion with people because I've followed the gender wars for now nine years. It's exhausting. And Mm. that same group of folks, they tend to be the same group. They believe that we have an internal race, we have an internal gender, and all of these concepts, when you start to, you know, scratch the surface, it's a very prototype of Christianity, albeit Mm. non-religious, but everyone has a soul. It's a gendered soul. It's a racial soul. And I tell people, I'm like, wait, that's a bit racist, no? Or that's a bit regressive sexist, like 1950s. How do we shift the conversation when we have a whole body of leftists and they're totally in the woke posture still? I'm hoping that dies down. But they really believe it's onward Christian soldiers. Like if you do not buy into the goodness of what we saw during COVID. I don't know if you saw what happened to Adolf Reed as well, but he tried to slap down the idea of there being some kind of proven relationship between biological determinism and COVID sickness rather than sociological determinism. And people took issue with that and disinvited him from the DSA convention in Philadelphia, New York. And I'm thinking, wait, this is a person who we need on the left And he's saying that this kind of rhetoric is unhelpful. In fact, it could even be seen as racist. So we're back trying to explain to people who think that they're the answer to racism, that they might be part of the problem. How do we approach these people? Like, how do we discuss it? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And I think, you know, what what you said about Christianity, I think is a really important one, because one of the, the quite striking things about the last few years has been actually the way in which um, religious ideas have essentially been kind of rehabilitated and and repackaged in a a new way without the kind of possibility of actual salvation that you might get um, if you were a kind of religious believer. So we see that in the kind of the the rituals that have um, just catapulted into the kind of forefront of global consciousness, whether that's kind of taking the knee, um, apologizing, all of these kinds of things have just, these kind of almost religious-like rituals have, have kind of filled the gap um, and, and also the, the way in which um, people repent <laughs> for their guilt. And if only you kind of um, do the work or read certain books or you know, listen to certain podcasts, will you then be educated enough to be able to perhaps um, repent for your, your kind of awful sin of racism? And, and it, it, it is quite um, striking, um, the kind of parallels in the kind of fervor and, and the kind of... Um, dogmatism um, that we've actually seen in, in a lot of the kind of um, more left authoritarian ideology. But yes, it, you're, you're very right as well about the kind of the, the almost essentialist, um, that the kind of rehabilitation of essentialist ideas again to be framed as progressive. So, so whether that's kind of female or male stereotype or, or, or as you said, kind of race as, as something that should be reified and institutionalized and kind of whiteness as a very distinct and um, separate and specific concept uh, as, as in opposition um, to kind of blackness as a particular set of characteristics that um, black people can never escape from or transcend. And, and it, it's a real um, kind of, it's incredibly regressive and, and, um, and there's no vision for the future. You know, there's no, um, there's no 
idea of what where we're trying to go as a society there's no realm to which we actually go what are we collectively trying to achieve okay we might have different ways of doing it but are we really trying are we both genuinely trying to work towards the goal of abolishing um, racism and, and race and, and that part of the conversation hasn't seemed to be there but in terms of how we shift the, the conversation one of the things that I've been really thinking about more recently and this is partly why I've kind of taken a slight step back from the conversation is thinking that whilst all of these things have come up whether that is you know questions about changing names or or kind of critical race theory or conscious bias all this kind of stuff it seems to be a kind of feedback loop and, and what and instead of kind of me thinking about what is why my ideological opponents let's just say are, are wrong and I, and I kind of know why I think they're wrong I'm really thinking about recently what is it and what they're saying that's actually true because when I think about that then I kind of see how that kernel of truth has been kind of a, a kind of grander bigger narrative has been able to kind of um, make sense of that very small truth and and so when I kind of focus upon what this what a what is it that what they're saying is true, then I can perhaps reframe the narrative around that particular truth. And some of the things that they are saying that are true. So there is a sense, we're not fully sure what it is, but there is a sense, whether that's Trump supporters or Black Lives Matter supporters, many different types of people, that there's something wrong. That I don't know if that's a perennial sense that we always think that that's something wrong in society so we can you know, try and innovate. But there is this sense that whether that's the political um, the political system, the way of socially organizing economic inequality, there's something that feels unfair. And, and they're kind of picking up on that sense. You know, the, the second truth in what they're saying is obviously that, that there is ra racism still exists. I'm not sure it's anything that can ever be abolished, but they kind of play into that historical legacy and kind of instrumentalize it for various broader political goals. And I think when I start to think about the truth in what they're saying, then I think I can try and like um, actually respond to that very real deep sense of grievance, but perhaps find an alternative path. So I think attacking it and criticizing it is definitely important in terms of exposing it for its weaknesses. But a lot of people don't believe things because they're factual. There's a lot of things we believe that we don't have any evidence for, <laughs> we just believe them. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested right now, and as I said, thinking about how how this narrative has come to become so compelling well it's interesting to me because in in thinking about our discussion today i was writing down some ideas i wrote a piece on darwin last year and i spoke to adam rutherford about this as well because i'm very interested to see what scientists are making of this kind of darwinian mythology because he was very clear there is no race amongst humans okay now we also know that racism in its historical reality, the word race as the root of that word has come into play. So people will say racism in the same sentence that they say race. Okay, so instead of saying race, people might mean to say skin color or ethnicity, etc. fair enough. And I take these shorthands for what they're worth, but then I get to, well, I'll, I'll use my own life. Um, my father is Indian, my mother is Canadian. And I grew up hearing people saying, oh, so you're mixed race or you're mixed or you're colored. So in the 1970s, you know, it was very common for people just to like bring that up. And I was a little kid. 
watching people, even seeing people discuss with my parents or whatnot, I almost felt like I was a, a breed of dog. You know how people will talk about dogs saying, he's half terrier and half this. And as I grew older and I would think about what I witnessed, I felt mm, it touched me. And I, I still am touched by this. I was thinking of this yesterday. I was in the U.S. Army and I was in airborne school. After my first jump from the airplane, you're trained to jump, you hit the ground and everything, and you start to collect your parachute. As I was collecting my parachute, one of the men who for the previous weeks had been yelling at me, he was a black hat, basically a drill sergeant, but you say black hat in airborne school, he came up to me. He was in his 30s. Most of my black hats were, in fact, African-American. And he said to me, he said, congratulations, you know, because I was no longer, you know, I was a new airborne person. And he said, one question, are you black? And I looked at him and I said, no, I was a bit shocked simply because he had never spoken to me in any way that wasn't to jump to the ground and give push-ups or run faster, or, you know, like I was given commands for these weeks before. Yeah. And I remember thinking about this. So my, my identity has always been a curiosity for people, even though in real life, I don't run around subtitling myself. My friends know about me and my life because we have talks just like your friends, you, and then they meet your friends and your family and your sister and, you know, People learn about people in very natural ways. We don't run around with subtitles. So I was thinking about all this and the way in which whiteness is constructed. Because I tell you this story because at the age of 10, I moved from very white Canada, even though, again, my father is from West India. We moved straight to the South, New Orleans. And that cultural shock, and it was a cultural shock, uh, was, was, wow, revealing of so many things. And I suddenly found myself in a culture where that one drop identity was on full swing. If uh, I would see, you know, many African-Americans with, uh, who were in fact albino, uh, white skin and white Afros, but, you know, there was a, a nomenclature all in place. If you had one parent who was black and one parent who was not, as in my case, you were black. And mm -hmm. if you had one grandparent, you know, and so forth and so on, the one drop rule still existed in the 1970s in New Orleans. And I'm thinking, why is it that whiteness is ultimately what's at stake here? It's being protected. When in mm -hmm. fact, I think whiteness is a myth. This is my theory. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you look back in history, in Ayat, there's so many examples from the way history framed Russian and Polish identity 150 years ago, these were not considered white identities at all. They were considered Oriental, like I'm using the words of the Orientalists, by the way. And the same thing goes for the Mestizo identity. Octavio Paz writes of this in The Labyrinth of Solitude. He writes a beautiful portion of that book is dedicated to the chingada. It's this expression in Mexican Spanish where people will be like, hijo de la chingada. And chingada means a friction, a hitting, a violation. And he says that the Mexican race, the Mestizo, is a product of this kind of hybridity and this violence. And he goes, I mean, it's a book on this. It's well worth the read. And I keep mm. thinking about the way in which whiteness is always dissolved in so many societies, like in Latin America. 
even in Morocco. The Berbers who are lighter skinned than the Arabs are the more oppressed group, right? So how is it that in the West, whiteness becomes, historically, it was very protected. Today, as you aptly noted in your article last year, it is that reversal whereby now whiteness is guilt, debasement, and privilege, right? (laughs) And we're unable to talk about the reality of, let's say, socioeconomic concerns, class, access to power, because everything's wrapped up in this pseudo-religious guilt. It's original sin on the one hand for whites, and it's this kind of, it's, it's a new parody of racism in a sense as well, because BLM was also hosted by myriad light-skinned people who spoke of their own guilt, but they were at the mic, right? Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's always very interesting hearing how it, the, the, the kind of conversation plays out internationally, because I guess, you know, from where I am in the UK, it, it's a lot more, um, it, the, the whole idea of whiteness as it's kind of conceived in the kind of academic way, it is something that's been very much uh, it, it imported from the kind of uh, critical uh, race discourse and, and kind of whiteness studies in America. And it's really interesting seeing how um, kind of a lot of white people um, don't, don't kind of adopt that, that, that identity, um, kind of self-identify self, self um, with the kind of narrative around whiteness and see it quite, quite foreign because they've fr- frequently kind of um, identified themselves as kind of English or kind of like British and, and seeing how the kind of hyper-racialized discourse is kind of playing out in a country like Britain who never had um, kind of institutionalized kind of racial segregation and the kind of uh, way in which um, the kind of taxonomy um, of race didn't, it, it was exported very much to the colonies, but it wasn't necessarily in the same way playing out. So it's been very interesting seeing how, how that um, whole conversation um, has been. And, and that's very much the, the kind of the, the goal of, of the activists, as I write in that article, to kind of invert that meaning, um, because, you know, that, that they are right in the sense that it historically um, was used to, um, to kind of subjugate. And so um, after kind of fi- essentially feeling disillusioned with the, the progress of the civil rights movement, uh, the kind of emergence of the, the, the kind of idea that t- to invert it, it is a better solution than to kind of accept um, the, the kind of status quo, even though myself and others would actually argue that um, we've actually come a hugely long way if we compare it to where we were at as a society o- only a few decades ago. And whiteness has always been, um, it's very interesting seeing whiteness become again a a much reified concept because again if if you look at the UK, you know, Irish people um, were not regarded as white up until very, very recently. Um, And the conception of whiteness was a very, very specific kind of um, Anglo-Saxon kind of landowning um, idea and actually you know, working class white people um, in Britain were actually often racialized um, as, as something other than white. Um, and so, yeah, how, seeing activists now um, uh, encompass whiteness in such a broad way and, and, and seek to divide people in a hierarchy um, based off of their kind of proximity to whiteness and, and, may, and mean that that hierarchy must denote 
so many things about themselves is a very sad thing. And, um, you, you know, so much is being challenged and broken down by that very idea, because um, as I've said in other interviews, you know, according to this hierarchy, you're never a full human being. You know, every conversation must be stipulated by, um, you know, I, I as a X person, I as a this person, your, your meaning and your authenticity and your ability to fully participate in society and becomes, um, uh, your, your race becomes relevant to that. And, and, and that is, to me, a challenge to so many kind of fundamental liberal, liberal ideas. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so no, absolutely. Also, I remember, you know, when I found your name, I, it's a very beautiful name. And I thought, oh, I think she might be Nigerian. I'm, a, I, I'm very good at reading names and figuring out from where people, you know, emerge on this planet or their parents or their parents' parents. And then I, I read a bit further. And in fact, well, your, your parents are Nigerian. Yeah. And I thought about this a lot because, you know, people, again, uh, when I was living in New Orleans and people would say, so you're Indian. And they mm. would ask me if I was Navajo. And mm. so I was like, uh, not quite. But that's the thing. Is that it? Is it the conversation stop at India, blackness or Nigerian? Because I'm, I was much, you know, when I have friends who are Nigerian, I'm curious to know if they're Yoruba or Igbo or other and and to know more about well I would love to know how to make fufus and so I'm thinking you know how is it that our discourse has stopped at again blackness or Asianness or whatnotness but instead of you know well how do you make an empanada because in all my research in Argentina one of the things I had to actively seek out as a vegetarian was non-meat food. So you sort of figure out how to negotiate cultures, even in terms of basic needs. Now, what is driving the left's need to re-excavate really artifices of uh, hundreds of years ago at times, their need to see us as racial subjects? Uh, on the one hand, there's this Christianity at heart. On the other hand, I'm thinking, why is there still a need to locate the subject as a victim, as a racialized subject always? Will there ever be a time that we can just have a discussion that becomes about, again, our families, our experiences, our favorite foods, our least favorite foods, you see? Yeah, no, I think there are a lot of different kind of sociological and economic and political reasons why we're in this particular scenario. I mean, one of the kind of perhaps societal reasons is, as some people have kind of pointed to, I think Kenan Malik's book in The Meaning of Race, he kind of talks about how, um, you know, after the kind of end of the Cold War and the kind of collapse of the um, Soviet Union, a lot of the left essentially became disillusioned with the kind of possibility of, of kind of realizing a better society and, um, and, and began to kind of retreat um, into much more kind of parochial forms of politics um, and, and kind of identity is one of them. And, and that has been also as a result of the kind of collapse of class politics. You know, a lot of the ways in which, um, at least in the UK, um, working class people um, organized um, ended up collapsing as a result of the change in the labor market. So whilst, um, at least in the UK, as I said, um, a lot of communities organized around industry um, and, and um, unions 
um, when a lot of, as a result of deindustrialization, a lot of people kind of moved into the kind of service sector. And, um, and, and a lot of those kind of jobs where people would gain um, democratic and political power no, no longer um, provided that, them, them with that opportunity. And so kind of race um, um, essentially became a tool um, for the left uh, to, to kind of gain legitimacy through kind of claims of, of kind of racism and sexism and this kind of move towards the kind of post-material into the, into the much more kind of um, identitarian and kind of parochial. And, and I don't think it's just a problem of the left. You know, I think that, um, I think that conservatives um, as well have kind of um, only very recently started to figure out what their kind of ideological and philosophical basis has been. And that's partly been as a result of the culture wars, giving them a reason to start thinking about what, what, what it is about society worth conserving. And so I think both of the ideological kind of underpinnings of our society have kind of lost, lost their kind of philosophical orientation. And um, I think there's also something broader that, um, than the left that's actually happening. You know, I think that, I think that the kind of, I think there is a kind of changing view of the subject. Um, I think that increasingly, not just from a left perspective, we, we are viewed as kind of not courageous and heroic and, and, and human beings that endure. We're, we're, we're viewed as kind of fragile, vulnerable, um, that there's a kind of therapeutic um, conception of human beings that, that are, are never fully actualized adults. Um, adulthood is a kind of um, something to fear. You know, we, we look to children and the young to kind of tell us how to live in our society. And so I think a lot of these things coalesce in, in, in a way where minorities um, due to kind of the historical um, reality of like discrimination become these vulnerable beings with no agents and, and they're often are used as a kind of stick to kind of differentiate um, particularly a kind of liberal left elites um, from the working class. So if you are kind of someone that speaks all of the correct language and uses all of the right words and cares about the, the kind of real or perceived grievances of minorities, you're, you're kind of morally superior and you're, and you're, and you're kind of in the know. And I, th and I think it's very sad because then minority groups um, they, again, they never get the possibility of actually transcending. They never get the possibility of actually being seen as, a, as an individual, as, as a human being, but just end up being a kind of buffer um, for a kind of political elite's failure to actually genuinely reflect upon and think about what, what, what they believe in and, um, and confront the realities of the problems in society in a meaningful way um, as, as, you know, minority issues end up being the kind of all-encompassing issues that we have to deal with. Um, and and I, th I think, um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know how we, how we move away from this point. I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier the Harper's letter, and I think that that letter was very telling because even people that are pretty much in elite levels of institutions, Harvard and world-class authors and journalists, um, elites essentially were unable to stop um, this kind of impending cultural revolution. And so I don't know. I, I think that I think it, it has to continue to play out. Um, and, and, and 
But there's one thing that I do think that's been very revealing because a lot of people kind of critique postmodernism um, and I definitely do as well and I understand why. But I think the rise in postmodernism has ironically been the very conditions to which we finally as a society start to talk about what we actually value. What is it that we conserve when we're seeing so many things be deconstructed and destroyed? Now we finally can think about, well, actually, I, I, I want this in my society. I like this about our society. Actually, I don't want us to just see each other as racial, racialized categories. And so actually the, the, the kind of the problem that we are now all awakened to in some senses is now helping us to actually navigate what it is that we, um, we actually do want to take forward and conserve. And, and I think that conversation is gonna to continue to, to, to go on. Indeed, the parochialism you refer to is fascinating to me because I see how it's much easier for politicians, academics, people in elite positions of power, even what Adolf Reed calls the managerial class, it's mm. very easy for them to address pronouns and proper ways of addressing a person in the various vocabulary that's been set upon us, rather than actually deal with human issues, the housing and job issues that we can see now for all of, let's say, in the American spectrum, Biden's talking about peace and the horrors of Trump's detainment of children at the border. And yesterday we saw, well, he's done a rinse and repeat of that. And mm. he's also torn down his promises about peace in Syria. So mm. it's very easy for us to say, excuse me, and I, you misgendered me and make a whole derail on Twitter about that rather than Let's deal with the housing crisis that exists in the UK. I remember when I was living in central London, I was living the last couple of years in the, in the waterways. I was on a narrow boat. And I can't tell you how much homelessness I saw from the narrow boat. It was incredible. Yet Corbyn and his cronies were more concerned about appeasing gender identity. How can labor leaders in the UK square the two? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that pronouns are in the same universe or solar system as housing and poverty and meals. How yeah. did that evolve in the UK that what's passing for left seems to be a tie dye of the right or something? It's very bizarre to me. Yeah, no, I think it's really, really interesting. And I've been recently reading a few Marxist critiques of cancel culture. And there's some really compelling ones um, when some sections of the left are even denying that cancel culture even exists. And it's like, you know, it's so interesting how the kind of the kind of contemporary um, kind of popular left um, have essentially kind of co-opted this or, or, or been able to argue that they are the, the voice of whether that's working class or young people, because there's something very striking to me about cancel culture and that is the way in which um, it, it ironically actually takes away the voice of, of the young and also the poor because of the way in which economically now so many people particularly at the bottom of society are, are, are in very precarious work and um, and so actually having a situation where um, you don't have job security um, and and your job now can no longer be got rid of by virtue of you slacking at your job, but now expressing a completely 
widely held and legitimate opinion only adds the layer of precariousness that um, young people and, and, and um, people at the bottom of society experience. And, and therefore they end up either self-censoring or not saying anything at all um, out of fear of, of the kind of social or economic consequences, thus actually handing more power to um, economic elites who can't be cancelled essentially because they have, you know, they've got money, they've got influence, they've got contacts, they've got networks, and they'll always find a fallback. And so the people that actually get harmed the most by um, the, the kind of hypersensitivity around words and language are the very people that the left um, claim to actually uh, want to be acting on behalf. And so it's a very, um, it, it's a very um, dangerous and, and, and destructive situation where you have large swathes of the population um, no longer feeling as if or even literally able to fully participate in a society. To me, that is, you know, a challenge to democracy um, in and of itself. And I think, um, and I think part of the left, I think it's very fashionable to, to like, to, kept, to say that you're caring about um, ethnic minorities or, or sexual or gender minorities and things like that. And I think it's very easy. And I think um, a lot of people um, at the moment would much rather do um, the thing that um, makes them look right on um, than actually do the hard and often arduous work of actually improving people's material lives. And so the fact that Jeremy Corbyn or whatever um, kind of mainstream political left party um, does when it comes to focusing on uh, kind of minority issues to the detriment actually oftentimes of the majority. Um, I, again, I think it's just a reflection of um, a kind of an, a failure of ideology, a failure of an ability to actually confront the world as it is and, and, and make sense of it as it is. And, um, and, and I think it's very sad because whilst that goes on, the, the, the social problems continue and actually often get worse now that we now that we're in such a situation as this kind of global pandemic. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. From the decolonizing period of the 50s with, let's say, Nkrumah, all the way through Algeria, Morocco, you name it, countries were decolonizing one after another from, what was it, 1956 on? And what has taken its place in the last 20, 30 years has been the rise of NGOs. And I saw this on the ground in Haiti where I was doing work on several projects, one of which was child trafficking, and I remember thinking, wait, Minister, the UN in Haiti, has been here for decades. And what has it really done about this problem of child trafficking? And so then I got to reading a great book called The Lords of Poverty, which was written years ago in the early 80s, a book I had really wished uh, to have read earlier than I had, because it deals with this way in which Western countries have taken it upon themselves to cure the poor, the starving, the, you know, all these other countries that they see in need of them. And over the past year, I've thought a lot about the Lords of Poverty and the way in which 
you know, even BLM and other movements have taken that same posture towards, oh, but they just need us to speak for them. And when I say BLM, I'm talking about, you know, the ringleaders. I'm talking about people who are cashing in on this, who are not themselves disenfranchised or poor, not themselves in prison unjustly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, this is not to say that there is no violence and no racism, et cetera, et cetera, but how is it that we know that there's been this kind of sleight of hand between missionaries in various parts of the world to now NGOs replacing the missionaries to continue the mission? And we're seeing this brought home. In a way, I view a lot of the protests last year and the way that people talk about structural racism, you know, because they can never define it. It's this way, as you said earlier, of the individual inserting him or herself into this, this framework of, I'm cool, you know, I'm woke, don't touch me. And I, I do wonder if the people making these arguments, and they have, you know, all backgrounds, some of them are black, many of them are not. And these people are sort of cashing on the latest ideolo ideological currency. Yeah. Is this also related to the fact of high joblessness amongst those who were schooled in wokeism and critical you know, race studies in cultural studies, and there are no more jobs for them. Mm. To, you know, I, I do question why this has persisted so long because I saw that there were places for people like that in Haiti and the UN because they were, they were sitting in those posts. But clearly there are more people educated in woke institutions who don't know what to do with that education. When you leave an institution, even with a, you know, a bachelor's degree and you've been taught that racism is everywhere, that post-colonial struggle has to continue, you're sort of left with the record skipping a beat constantly. Like there's no end to the song. It will just constantly go over and over the same thing. And I fear like, I fear that that's what's happening to us in many countries where we want to speak for the poor and the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, we're creating the myth of the poor, etc. even though they do exist in reality, but there's a, a kind of usurpation of this image of these people to make jobs happen, to create more NGOs, to create more startups and to click on to donate to this cause and what's happening to the actual disenfranchised? You know what I mean? No, I, I think you actually make a, a really good point. And again, it, it kind of touches upon what I said earlier. I think there's two really interesting aspects of, of um, kind of the identity politics, which is the way in which um, it is uh, kind of used as a radical form of differentiation from, from like the so-called lower orders as they that's how they treat them um and, and so yeah you know with the language and the, the the books and all of this kind of stuff you, you become a part of this kind of priestly class um and 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 you are right to touch upon whether or not this has anything to do with the fact that a lot of young people kind of don't have jobs and, and are, are graduating in a much more precarious um, economic Climate. So th this is a way of signal signaling your your um, your class, uh, your 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 higher class by by knowing all of the latest kind of fashionable kind of ideological 
um, trends, but it also is a is now become a very booming industry. I mean, the, the kind of absolute explosion of the um, kind of so-called diversity and inclusion industry, um, with whether the <laughs> consultants and um, um, <laughs> the, the cons- all of those things, it, it, it really has bolstered, as you mentioned earlier, the kind of managerial class who now have a, a new way of disciplining staff. Um, yeah. It's a very disciplinary regime um, where you, you know, kind of going into people's um, psyche and, and um, re- re-educating you into uh, correct thinking and, and you can be uh, reprimanded if you don't score high enough and, and on various different tests. And, and, and this is a real, um, this is a real shift in, and, and the consequences are very significant, the kind of breakdown of the separation between the public and the private sphere, um, the, 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 how, how your workplace is now also the domain of kind of, has become politicized. Um, and, and again, this is another interesting thing, the way in which the left have turned, which is kind of exported social transformation to the capitalist classes who they're, they're now the vanguard of of social transformation and and kind of ending racism and all of these kind of social ills and and it's now on it is now encompass on it is is now uh, you know responsibility of the the economic elites to kind of do away with us and i think that tells us something about the ideology that it's um essentially ideology and it doesn't actually challenge anything uh, it doesn't really reach anyone in a very very um, distinct and meaningful way and, and yeah and, and whilst all of this has happened none, none of the suggestions I've at least I've personally heard um, from from the kind of left modernists is the kind of um, to actually improve the material life of, of, of people it, it's all been a kind of uh, is a lot of it's been a veneer and I think it's very uh, it, it's very sad and I think but interestingly enough I think a lot more people are kind of um, switched on to that reality. And, and that's one of the, I guess, to some extent, positive things, if you can call it that, from, from the last year where a lot of more heterodox voices, so to speak, have emerged to kind of um, make sense of how the, the narrative that, we under, that we've been kind of um, fed um, isn't actually stacking up to reality. And we, we even saw that as recently as the kind of the end of last year that the election or, or you know whatever people's thoughts are on who, who should have won what was very striking as an outsider and this is something that happened in the UK as well the year before was that actually Trump had um, gained amongst ethnic minorities and and and, and then instantly after that I think I saw an article I think by Tana, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones it, talking about multiracial whiteness <laughs> <laughs> Re- reframing it to try and say that now, now people can be white, and that's, and, and that's why they they voted for Trump. And so we can see that um, it just doesn't it doesn't stack up. And so hopefully more of that kind of rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, ho- ho- hopefully more of that will will then start to chip away at, at the narrative. White is, white is the new black. <laughs> I'm saying this is so funny. I mean, when you start to speak about the training, I just can't even think about D'Angelo's book without cackling. It's really hard not to. 
mm-hmm. because it's so insane. And it's got this, the whole ideology, not just to Angela, not to pick on her, but that whole ideology has a mechanism built in that's exactly what the Inquisition did. It goes like this. If mm-hmm. like recently parents in Brooklyn and all over New York actually were complaining, worried that their kids were being taught that they were guilty of being uh, original sin racist because they were white. Mm-hmm. And what someone wrote, I forgot who wrote this in an article. It was like, well, this is just proof that they're really racist. So mm-hmm. by denying, by, by saying that there's a problem with such a mechanism that claims that everyone who has a certain kind of hue of skin is born a de facto racist. If you disagree with that, then it's proof that you really are a witch, you know, to use, you know, the other analogies. And it's insane because I wrote a piece last year about the weapons industry being involved in BLM because you have a major weapons industry that's putting on its website that we're committed to BLM. And I was just like, you have got to be kidding me. But don't ask the Yemenis what they think, mm. right? About the bombs hitting them. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it, it's really interesting um, and about how wokeness, whatever you want to call it, provides moral cover um, to elites. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're um destroying the environment or um um committing horrendous acts of of kind of war potentially or 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 not even fulfilling your obligations as a kind of political representative as long as either you come from a particular identity or espouse certain ideas then then you can be shielded from criticism and i think it the I've not actually commented at all on the kind of Meghan and Harry situation, and I'm I don't I'm not necessarily going to get into it in details. But what I do just find interesting is how, even if somebody who is perhaps what the the most probably the most pinnacle position you can get in a society, a hereditary monarchy um, of one of the most influential countries in the world, um, if essentially you can just talk about you know, race or, or gender or climate change or something like that, then you become, you attain a kind of level of sainthood. And I think that this is really worrying for the entrenchment of, of kind of deep, um, vast social inequality, where, um, where, where elite, can, elite individuals can, all, all they have to do is espouse certain ideas to then be able to protect themselves from any criticism. And, and we're in a very dangerous situation then, because that it, if we cannot criticize power, because that is what freedom of speech and, and you know, basic fundamental freedoms are primarily um, used for to kind of, and, and journalism, the freedom of the press to criticize power. And if now power cannot be criticized as long as it espouses certain ideas um, or claims to have certain beliefs, then we don't, we're not living in a free society. So I'm, I'm, I'm not one of the kind of catastrophizers or alarmists, even though I think they're very justified. He's kind of say we're on a precipice and, and, and this ideology kind of has the potential for civilizational collapse. Like I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm not a fatalist. I, I do think there's spontaneity, I guess, in the universe, which means that just as we didn't predict the kind of emergence of BLM in the way it happened last year, you know, we may well have a kind of radical expression of 
hedonism as a, after the after we open up as a society. So I don't know, but ultimately, I, I agree with those who do take the problem of kind of left authoritarianism, workness, identity politics, whatever people call it, as something that is essentially in opposition to certain fundamental elements of our society. Because um, if we cannot criticize power, if they if they articulate certain ideas, um, then then we don't really have a democracy in a meaningful way. I didn't watch it. Good. <laughs> I haven't watched it. I, I saw a little blip. And I just thought we've got one of the most powerful people in media in the US interviewing one of the most powerful, as you pointed out, hereditary units of one of the most powerful families on the planet. Megan is the lightweight in this show, but it's just perverse the way that this is presented to us. I mean, in the middle of many people's lockdown, because now I have no clue who's in lockdown where anymore because I'm on number three lockdown, I think. Mm. And it's just odd that this is what Oprah Winfrey chooses to show us. And my initial rage was at neither Harry nor Meghan. It's like, Oprah, what mm. are you doing? Like, you know, that you have people in your own country who cannot buy food. And I would have thought, you know, she had a very social human rights base. I'm talking back when she started as a, a very small channel in Chicago back in the day. Uh, my mother used to watch her. She was very interesting before she got popular. And mm. I just thought, well, where is the, the lefty Oprah, because she was far more left then, uh, who can, you know, sort of exploit her power to show the madness of what's going on with late stage capitalism and lockdown. You know, yeah. people in New York City who I know who are being told they can pay back their rent now, how yeah. is anyone who's made no money for the past year gonna pay back tens of thousands of US dollars in rent? Mm. And these are the discussions that no one is having, not even the quote unquote woke leftists. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it's a very good point because I think that's one thing that's very interesting about it is that it, it creates a constant pantomime. Um, the entire, uh, the whole ideology, whether that is, you know, a kind of outrage over, you know, misgendering or outrage over, you know, we recently saw this um, Vogue, uh, not Vogue, Team Vogue, yeah, Team Vogue editor um, be fired, this very young woman for, things that she said when she was 17. And it's like, um, it's a, and a whole nother fury comes out of that. And uh, you know, there was something absurd. I can't remember what it was about. Oh, Dr. Zeus, was it? Um, <laughs> this, this, and all of this kind of stuff. So it's a constant pantomime that we're kind of forced to participate in because again, even the biggest television shows, the biggest broadcasters will kind of make it, um, it kind of drives so many ratings. And in, whilst all of this is happening, again, people's material lives are actually significantly diminishing by the reality of the kind of market, whether that's market forces or real kind of institutional forces stopping people from kind of going um, to, 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 to work or anything like that. And so, yeah, it, it, so we, we're forced to participate in this pantomime whilst real um, kind of material issues do not get confronted or addressed. And, and it's very, um, and it, it's it's constant constant income for for certain people who who um, who again can can continue to 
um, say all of the right things and get the right, the magazine covers. I mean, there was a, a, a woman, a transgender woman called Monroe Bergdorf who got on the cover of Time Magazine, which was astonishing to me um, because most of what she said has been really, really, really um, shallow and, and just not very thought through. And, 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 and it ends up benefit, benefiting a very, very, very small minority of people. Um, and, and, and we're all kind of forced to engage in this. Um, and so, I, and so I, I, I think that how, how, we, how we deal with it, um, I, I don't think many of these institutions are completely lost. You know, some people do think whether that's the New York Times or um, you know, CNN or anyone else is just completely captured ideologically um, that they, they're, they're kind of hopeless. And I think, I think that may be a possibility, um, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to have to start making uncancelable institutions where actually the, we, the values that they are set to actually fulfill, whether that's free and open ideas, courage, bravery, kind of rigorous pursuit of truth are at the heart again. Um, because to turn the, turn the steering wheel um, is going to be, I think, probably much harder than actually starting to create new things. Certainly, I completely agree. I mean, your reference to the Teen Vogue editor, her name is Alexi McCammond. What struck me is the Moibus strip that was created there as well, because she was involved like last week in a call out. Recall that? She mm. had called someone else out at Vogue. They mm. lost their job. Then she's called out. And then this made me think, well, if everyone's calling everyone out, like you and I potentially in 50 mm. years might be called up because we used a an article, maybe the article the goes out of use. It's considered that it's murdered already 5,000 people. Who knows? And I mean, I'm being facetious here, but in a way purposefully because where do we stop the madness? Like, remember when Kevin Hart, he was deplatformed from hosting maybe the Oscars? Mm. I think, give it a break. I mean, mm. I'm gay. I, I thought what he said was fine. People might hate that I say that, but part of the thing about humor is being able to first and foremost laugh at yourself. So when comedians yeah. make jokes about lesbians and their comfortable shoes, laugh at it. It's probably true. And again, this is not to excuse abuses that can and do happen via spoken word, but this nitpicking over everything that everyone said, I find a bit boring and humorless. And then at the same time, like Alexi McCammond might have been, you know, hoisted by her own petard as, as the saying goes, but maybe this is where we learn instead of sacrificing the career of a 27 year old who may perhaps, especially now, find it difficult to find a new job, given her you know, reputation has been slammed. Maybe we need to stop using these techniques and just and stop like full stop, you know, and I don't right. know if people can. I've just you know, right now, I'm, uh, right before we spoke, I was redacting a piece of mine on this social media spiral that people get into. And I've seen people who I really like go crazy on Twitter, you know? Uh, and I just wonder, what is it about people? Is it that 
humans are fundamentally narcissist and we just want people to like us and have more followers and clicks and it doesn't matter to what end we insult people because I've seen people be really vicious on these platforms or the more recent attacks on the journalist Jesse Singal. Why is it that people just can't seem to let go of these mechanisms that are very much the way of our spiral downward? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think that we are still so, we're, in, we're not even in the adolescent state of, stage of figuring out the, these mechanisms um, because the, there are certain unique things about it that other people have touched upon. The fact that for the very first time um, you can say something and a million people see it. And not only can a million people see it, a million people can attack you, but also not just attack you, they can praise you. And what, what that does to kind of, I don't know, the human psyche, I think is very, very, um, it is still yet to be uh, founded. And, and very easily now someone can write a blog post and, and kind of share it around as true and it could be completely baseless. And so we have these kinds of, and, and also just the, even as I said earlier, the erosion between the public and private spheres also manifested on social media, where when you're saying something on Twitter, well, you, you, is that public? Is that, or is it because people follow you? Like people don't really know if you're saying something that's the kind of public sphere or, or is it kind of a quasi public sphere? And so all of these questions kind of upend many of the things that we essentially thought were settled and kind of bring forth new questions. But in the meantime, whilst we're figuring out those questions, so many people are being burned. And I think I, I, I a lot of people call young people snowflakes. But as I said to you earlier, I, I actually feel very sad for kind of younger generations who, who don't really know what to do, what to say, what are the consequences? How is that gonna impact them in later life? They're not allowed to make mistakes. They're not allowed to learn from them. And they're gonna, they're, it's memorialized and vilified on the internet in perpetuity. You know, how, how could you not essentially become a snowflake after that and just never wanna say anything and always find everything offensive because you're just scared that it's gonna traumatize everyone. And so, and so yeah, the, these are real crappy things that are essentially now realities that we're gonna have to deal with. Um, and, and they're really hurting people. And, and there's incentive structures for journalistic institutions now to actually drive the viral story and, um, and maybe make a correction a week later, but not really promote it. And so no one knows. And so you, you get the kind of information ecosystem filled with more fog, more, more confusion and more narrative warfare. And, um, and, and finding our way out of that is gonna be really, really tough. And I think that actually what we're seeing, unfortunately now is that actually people are then retreating into separate platforms, platforms, you know, Twitter banning a bunch of people, whatever people's views are on that, you know, I think it does essentially relegate a certain proportion of the population to the wilderness looking for another place to go. And so we don't actually have any um, mechanism now to actually um, to, to dive a little deeper it, it, into each other and, and not kind of um, jump on the caricature as we were saying in the beginning. And so I think that um, some of the things that I've been arguing for, and I think it's going to be hard because obviously everything now is so internationalized, but it's the kind of re the recreation of the physical public square and like actually having places outside of the internet where we actually engage not just in constructive discourse 
but actually to kind of engage with one another beyond our political abstractions, because the internet cannot be the only place, or at least, when I, even though I say all of that, what one thing that I will add is that I also think the way the internet is used is both a product of the internet and how it's being, how the incentive structures on social media, but also a product of the where, where we're at as a society. As I mentioned earlier, I think we have had a shift in the conception of what a human being is to be one that is a much more fragile, weaker and vulnerable one that's hypersensitive. And that's reflected in how we engage with one another on social media. We have had a kind of much more disconnected, fragmented and socially atomized form of social organization. And that also is reflected um, in, the, in the kind of tribalism that we see on social media. And so I wouldn't wanna frame social media necessarily, changes in social media as a solution to social problems. But I think a kind of, we need to get serious, I think, both in America and Canada and in Europe on the kinds of civic society building and solidarity building um, institutions and mechanisms, which can then start to really get to the, um, the root of, of what, why we cannot talk to one another and why we're just going down this, this negative um, feedback loop. Well, it's funny to see in the States that during the last four years of Trump, the left and quote unquote left neoliberals had mm. him to blame for everything. Mm. But now he's not there. And we're seeing another okay. story emerge. What are you seeing from this new era? Well, you know, I, I, well, I never thought that um, the problems were necessarily caused by Trump. I definitely think he exacerbated many of them. Um, but he, in a lot of ways, was a reaction to the problems and the kind of, um, and, and, and he became a kind of uh, figurehead um, to, to a lot of people on the left and the right, both as like someone that could deal with all the problems on the kind of one hand and someone that was a representative of all the problems on the other hand. And, um, and, and so to me, Trump was always a reaction um, to, um, the kind of issues uh, that were being um, uh, accelerating. And so when he eventually obviously left office, I, I never thought that, that the problems were gonna go away. And I was really surprised that a lot of people, you know, many very intelligent and, and, and people that I respect very dearly did think that um, he would, uh, him going would somehow be uh, the end of some of these problems. And I, I do understand some who think it at least gave a release in so far as we weren't 24 seven talking about the president um, and, any, and things he was saying and all that kind of stuff. But I never, never ever thought that he was necessarily the root of them. And so now, um, now that he's gone, perhaps it might be an opportunity, I don't know, to actually really become honest about it because you can no longer blame him. Um, and you can really see it for what it is. And, and the fact that 30% of the population um, is essentially disenfranchised by, by being removed off of the internet. Um, the fact that um, Joe Biden has very much part and parcel accepted um, the kind of neoliberal, um, kind of hyper-socially liberal um, ideology and that, that will likely become further institutionalized um, and, and the fact that we may see a, a re-emergence of the kind of military industrial complex and, and, and the kind of American incursion into foreign 
overseas, overseas territories will, will then call into question the morality um, of, of many of these ideologies and, and how they provide moral cover. So, so Trump leaving may be an opportunity for people to see that actually he was never, he was definitely, he exacerbated the problems that he wasn't necessarily, in my personal opinion, the, the cause of it. And maybe we, we might get more honesty now. I was thinking of the piece you sent me. Thomas Frank's liberals want to blame the right-wing misinformation for our problems. Mm. That piece spoke to me. I think some of the promises of, let's say, what happened last year in the States or the failed attempt to cut and paste BLM in the UK mm. has revealed that culture is real, that you can't just copy and paste American racial history onto the UK and call that a success at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I think you're so right. And, you know, again, as I said, I think it, that now hopefully um, we can actually start to, people will start to reflect, as I said about the whole multiracial whiteness point. Well, a lot of people are going li- to read that and just think, you know, that doesn't really make sense. And so I think, um, I think people will have to reassess the narratives that they've been using to make sense of the world and, and, and see that they're not actually stacking up. And, and, and yeah, the, the whole, um, the, the conversation in Britain has definitely um, been shifting. Um, it, it's it's um, got, still got a lot of challenges, but a lot of people have now been rethinking the, the kind of importation of the Americanized um, experience. And an example would be, um, we have a festival in Britain called the, the the kind of Notting Hill Carnival, and when the famous singer Adele a few months ago wore, wore um, some kind of Jamaican carnival clothes, a, bu- a lot of um, African American kind of anti-racist activists were calling her a cultural appropriator, and um, and everyone in Britain was essentially horrified to hear that because actually it you know Britain that when the kind of West Indians came to the UK in in significant numbers in in the mid 20th century one of the the things that was created in order to integrate people was the Notting Hill Carnival and it was meant to be a fusion of kind of Caribbean culture and British culture and and so white people in Britain very much participate in the kind of Caribbean um, festivities and it's something that a lot of people are very positive about and so when when and and that was actually something that was regarded as um, a, a force of good and a force of integration and kind of cultural fusion and so when a, a bunch of Americans basically accused um, Adele of co- cultural appropriating it it, it it was a very big revelation to a lot of people that actually you can't import um, these things wholesale and actually they don't fit with the historical and cultural specificities um, of the UK. And that's a very rich and very important um, history and tradition that, and and any kind of cultural shift must take into account those those specificities. And so, yeah, I think now, I I don't think the dust is fully settled. I think by virtue of the lockdown, I think the lockdown in and of itself creates the conditions for pressure cookers that end up spilling out. So I I think until we actually even just open up fully as a society, we're still gonna see these massive flares of kind of um, tension and ideological warfare, essentially. We've had one in Britain very, very recently in the last few days. Um, and so until the, those kind of pressures are released again, I think we're going to continue. But that kind of fundamental ideological um, struggle that, that some people call the culture wars, um, it, it is something I think that gets to the heart of, of what is a society? What is the relationship between 
state and citizen what does it mean to be a human what are our obligations to one another i actually think that the, the so-called culture wars is actually a, a a very fundamental um struggle and um a very fundamental philosophical and intellectual um kind of discussion that's happening um and i i don't think we're, we're necessarily at that fundamental level yet i think it's still very much at the level of um you know is this factually correct is that not factually correct but actually i think the question is much deeper is like you know why where are we going as a society and, and, and why are we in this position and and how do we how do we get to where we want to go um so yeah it it it, it will it will continue to go on <laughs> Could you tell our listeners about the Equiano project that you found and direct? Yeah, so I, I founded the Equiano project um, in August last year, and it was something I wanted to do for ages. But obviously, the kind of BLM protests um, gave it a sense of urgency, and 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 the project um, essentially aims to promote um, and advocate and argue for um, a kind of form of universalism and humanism. And what I mean by that, the universalism is, is essentially that um, um, certain principles are kind of uh, universal. And I do believe that such as kind of human dignity and, and kind of freedom of speech and human agency. And, and the humanism is less a kind of, it's not a religious, anti-religious perspective. It's actually one that articulates um, the individual capacity of each human being um, to, to kind of transcend um, their own circumstance and take responsibility for their life. And it and it's focuses on race, culture, and politics, and and it's essentially um, a an alternative vision to the narrative of um, parochialism, of intersectionality and sectarianism, um, and and the narrative of that degrades human agency and sees us as fundamentally um, in a kind of um, kind of warfare between different racialized categories. And, and, and that's kind of what we do. And, and it's been really amazing since we launched in August last year. You know, it's now become much bigger than what I had originally hoped. And there's been thousands of people that have reached out to us just so thankful for an alternative perspective, um, an alternative vision. And we kind of go into schools, we go into community groups, we publish articles, we publish reports, we publish artwork um, and, and book reviews. And it's, it's my hope is for it to essentially be a hub for um, for for both heterodox and curious thinkers and open-minded people who who are interested in a in a much more positive and unifying vision that actually is solution oriented um and that includes all people it's not a, it's not a space where it's about you as a black person you as a white person you know our, our individual humanity um is is what we bring to the table and just quickly it, it was named after a um, a former slave and writer and abolitionist in the 18th century in the UK called Oladawa Criano. And the reason I named it after him was because, again, a lot of the time in Britain, we kind of center African-American experience and, and don't always focus on the kind of the black Britons that have been in the UK for hundreds of years. And um, he, he, um, he emphasized even during the time of slavery, the importance of moral virtue and, and, um, and he showed extraordinary bravery and courage, even in the face of profound adversity. And to me, that's a compelling story in the face of a society that has never been more 
at least, le ne never been more materially wealthy. We have so many middle class and upper class people complaining about how terrible their life is. Um, so, so that's essentially what the Equiano project does. And the mission is to create an alternative narrative. Mm -hmm.